You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we were playing a lot of bars during the week. I was playing in bars and going to high school. And next, we opened for Metallica when I was in high school and went, I went to high school the next day. The funniest thing about that is in the same house here, we were playing in a theater in Port Jervis opening for, for Metallica and Overkill. And the people from Megaforce contacted me because Metallica needed somewhere to stay and my mother wouldn't let Metallica stay in the house. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza and here is sometimes once again we're missing another member. Ben Ben has had to hobble off somewhere for some some uh, who knows he's hurt he's hurt himself again as usual but but Siobhan Cronin is here and I must say happy birthday and thank you for spending your birthday here. Yeah, so as everyone may notice, if you're watching the YouTube, I am in a different spot. We are about to depart on tour, so, but with without going too far into that, we did this week have my dear friend Chris Caffrey of Sabotage TSO, his own solo projects. It, I haven't seen him in so long as I used to play with him in TSO back in the day, but it was really, really cool to have him tell his story. Yeah, and uh, kind of a treat for me, and I didn't, I didn't bring it up on the podcast, but you know, that the TSO DVDs have been like a family tradition you know, I remember getting them at some point, and I, I might have bought it for myself, but my parents definitely stole it, and they watch it every year at Christmas. So, it's a, <laughs> it's been a huge part of my life. And TSO is such a, a it's, they're beyond the level of like a big band. They're just this their own unique thing. And and Chris talks about, you know, the humble beginnings through through the the global sensation that they are now. So it's a really interesting episode. Yeah. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Part one with Chris Caffrey. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of 2020. My name is Siobhan Cronin. I'm here, as always, with Benny Goodman and Corey Peza, my friends, my cohorts, my Lost Symphony bandmates. Hey! As they say in Mawa, New Jersey. (laughs) And today today we have a dear, dear friend of mine who I've spent time on stage with many times, Chris Caffrey of TSO, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Sabotage, many other things, incredible solo person. Artist. Uh, yeah, solo artist. Solo artist. Yes, I play with myself a lot. <laughs> he was with Big Mouth in 1988, so don't forget that. He's not even going to get a word in here. Wait, that was, yeah, it was 88. That was 88. Some people know more about me than me. I was with every band <laughs> on Atlantic that needed a guitar player from 87 through 90 it was kind of was one of those things I, I toured with sabotage and then i was kind of side stage rhythm guitar player keyboard player experiment and then atlantic saw me and liked me and threw me into big mouth where i actually met some friends that kind of did that but then atlantic put me into dirty looks and then me and the singer and dirty looks didn't get along very well so that was they were doing the uh turn of the screw record and 
they actually had a really big push that was about to happen for that band and they were atlantic was having home run after home run with bo hill as a producer and the president of atlantic wanted dirty looks to use bo and the singer in dirty looks god i don't like to speak evil about the dead but he he was basically a jackass sometimes but he didn't want to listen to atlanta's atlantic's advice atlantic flew us from the east coast to la spent like 50 grand to record two songs with Bo. wow just to see how it went i really liked it he was putting in a lot of his background vocal styles the stuff you heard in rat and kicks and that kind of stuff into dirty looks and it it was still dirty looks but it was the singer said it was homogenized he hated it so he went and said no to it and i guess the president of atlantic was really close with Bo at the time and that didn't go over well and that singer i mean long story short he, he put a cigarette out on my arm when i was driving our, our rental car on that 101 in, in california just to see what it would do you know he was that kind of a he wasn't the most charming individual so he kind of had a sound that he wanted and i was 19 years old nobody told me what to do then and i just didn't really get along with him that well so he said you know we're gonna play things my way or no way and i was like fine i'll do it no way so i did the basic tracks for turn of the screw and wrote a couple uh, riffs and some songs on the record and i bailed and you know i i, I think they they redid the rhythms in a different studio anyway and, and i never got credited for my songs it was funny there was one part in a song that was in like f sharp and the singer didn't credit credit me for it he's like well you know it's just natural the song would have went to f sharp there i'm like yeah so every every song <laughs> riff i ever wrote that you naturally would have been something that went in that direction but um well can i ask you something because you you mentioned you got fifty thousand dollars to do two songs and now we're in 2022 and you're lucky if you got fifty thousand dollars to do two albums like, exactly. can you can you, can you give exactly. us like a perspective of what it used to be like because you know now everybody i mean i'm in my basement right i have a studio down here it looks cool me too you know, that's what yeah, you we got to talk about your basement too. When we, when we get to here, it. But I have a studio and a full bar. There's 12 pinball machines, <laughs> but you can't see all of only four of them are on right now. But there's, I, I quit drinking, but there's a lot of booze here if anybody ever wants to come and get hammered. All right. I got like 200 <laughs> bottles of every kind of liquor on the planet. Because once I stopped drinking, I was just like, oh, I just want to buy all these bottles of booze. So I have them. So now I have all these different boozes here, and they look cool. Because that's, you know, it's all about the blue look. <laughs> for sure. Well, it looks amazing, like, for anyone that uh, is fun. listening it's to the... Like, to it's called the Silver Silver Dollar Saloon, and it's called that for a reason. I, I can, I'll can i go get them while we're speaking, but there's there's three silver dollars here. And this house is was built, I think, in the um, early 1960s. It's my family's house. We moved here in, like, 83, and I came back home, I think it was 2007, because the place I lived in the city, the landlord, um, she was actually the daughter of my old landlord of a lot of places I lived in Astoria, and she was getting married and decided she needed the house. And I lived with, in this house for five years with no lease, because I was just kind of like a family friend kind of thing with those. And she knocked on the door one day, and she's like, I need the house. And I'm like, when? She's like, the end of the month. So I had, a, I had a European tour coming up, and I dumped everything back home up here at the fam my family's house and went on the road. And then when I got back home, 
you know, I realized my mom was here, how much she really couldn't do by herself. So I just decided to stay and I took it over and I built my bar in my studio and I got a barn and a beach and a golf course in my backyard. And I just hang out and hide from the world. But uh, silver dollar name came, the silver dollar saloon name came because there's a little room over to my right that we built into a bathroom that used to be a dark room because the people that lived here had the one guy was a photographer back when we actually used film you know so it was a dark room in there and we ripped the ceiling off to put a new one in and he had in the sheetrock he had weird things hidden there was a bank envelope that had these three silver dollars in it and then there was this other envelope that had a bunch of like love letters from his dad to his dad's wife that were written during a war. It was like some really weird stuff were in the ceiling, but wow. it became the, that's what became the silver dollar saloon. But that's just where I was hanging it. You know, everybody got trapped during the, the pandemic. It's like, I really didn't have it that bad because I have almost everything you need. There's everybody here, but people, it was like, you know, yeah. when <laughs> Blazing Saddles when they built the other Rock Ridge and they're like, we're missing people. You know, it's like that's wasn't Blazing I, Saddles canceled. You can't even watch that. Do you remember that on television when they used to edit Blazing Saddles? Canceled. I was on an airplane flight. It was not very long ago, probably within the last five years. And Blazing Saddles was the movie on the flight and it was unedited it was an unedited well that's wild considering they're trying to cancel gone with the wind at one point i was hearing and like that's a period piece like there was racism you know guys no i have that little elephant wilbur wilbur's the metal yeah oh my gosh wilbur on your instagram wilbur makes appearances wilbur goes um, everywhere we do sea glass stuff like this is a sea glass birdhouse and Sometimes That's I can't, cool. I Check can't out the really YouTube. Draw. I can't really draw, but I can make almost any cartoon character. You guys know who this is? <laughs> uh, uh, is it, that's not Casper the Ghost. Is, no, no, it's the no, other it's, guy. I'm cereal. Booberry, right? Booberry. Oh, Booberry. Booberry. Luckily, he was blue, or he wouldn't be able to have his his name. You know, <laughs> they released that like a limited edition. <laughs> like, knees off the Land of Lake chick. I was just like, you know, the the Land of Lake container and the chick off of it were you guys as twisted as we were when we were kids we used to take the land of lakes container and we we would cut the cardboard and leave the, a flap at the top of the chick's chest so this is like you know little kid and, and we cut the knees off and put them underneath to tape it to the back so when you open up the flap there was like boobs and that's you know and all of a sudden the chick was too she was too you know racial racist to put on the thing because she was an indian and i'm like god you took away a kid's opportunity to make knee boobs it shows you the difference (laughs) in generations i know because you did that with the land of lakes there's probably generations of knee boobs just totally (laughs) shed you know corrected by that whole situation because we didn't oh get, we were we were like innocently evil back then it's not like nowadays where you got like freaking oh it's like internet for- evil everyone like trying to take oh, yeah. down the world online i was just about to say like different generations like so you're like you're fucking with the land of lakes box i'm like i remember stealing my mom's victoria's secret magazines that she would get to sell whatever <laughs> and then watching internet porn go like this you know what I mean? And it tells you, like, with my dial-up modem, my mom's like, why can't I make a call? It's like, Mom, I'm looking at boobs. I've been waiting for 47 minutes. Like, 
on my Mac. Yeah, and it went reverse directions too because then the internet came and then the strip club numbers went down, 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 down because all the girls were like, "Oh wait, I don't have to be around people naked to make money. I can throw me twenty dollars a month." Here's OnlyFans.com. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 it totally killed the perfectly. Well, at least for us, when we were on the road, it was a perfectly busy, you know, business in this country. They were all over the place. I mean, it, and then they just all closed down. But I heard it's on the way back again. But I don't know. I haven't been to one in a long time because I haven't been anywhere in a long time. Well, there's <laughs> also the Internet and COVID. So you could just go on your camera and do anything for anyone anywhere live. And it's just like, here's yeah. your the transactional money. I don't have to touch your hundred dollars bills with the cocaine. I just get your Bitcoin and your. Yeah, your, but whatever I think after COVID yeah. that everyone's over with there the Internet. Bitcoin. So it probably is a surge again. You could get Bitcoin in an ATM. <laughs> I mean, what? Explain that. I guess you add extra Bitcoin. I don't really do the Bitcoin. Oh, thing. I, don't, I have no idea. I really that's don't above either. my pay grade. Even yeah, Bitcoin yeah, experts can't explain it. <laughs> right. I can't, I can't even afford a Bitcoin according to the internet. I think they're like, I, was, I don't even know how much, 27 about grand 40, or something for no, about a Bitcoin. 40, 46 or 47 oh, grand at the moment. How oh. rich are you now, Corey? Uh, not that rich. Look, I'm not I'm not rich on it either. I had a friend of mine who's like, look, I need help. If you buy buy bitcoins, I get a bonus of money. So I bought some bitcoins with him to give him a bonus of money and it went down like sixty percent. And I'm like, oh thanks. <laughs> like, like, now I look like the that asshole. Whole business, that whole business that was like early in the early in twenty twenty one and it it sucked ass since then. I mean, those things are not I told everybody I said I would be really cautious about that because eventually you're trying to replace real money with that money. Somebody's going to regulate it, and then everything's going to go to zero. And there's going to be Bitcoin Central that's going to have control. And all these yeah. people that sank all this money into these things. I always tell them, I'm like, if you made it, take it out. Me, it might take me sixty years to get back that sixty percent that I lost. Giving that guy a fucking I don't know what he got, like a ten dollar bonus for me signing up <laughs> for Bitcoin, and I wound up losing like. I don't know. I only put in like 400 bucks, but it's down to like 200 and no, it's, I don't even know where I'm at. It's I'm below. I forget. It's a I've gamble. Lost, I've lost hundreds and he made $10. That's all yeah. I know. <laughs> well, before we go too far, to write it off though. I was able to write off that loss. So there you go. Makes it sting a little less more work than it was probably worth. But I, I want to go back because, um, you know, not to that. Uh, this is an interesting, but I want to talk a little bit about you and that you started your career super early. And yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, touring or recording albums already when you're 19 and like being sort of in the scene already. How did you get started? And like, how did your career take off so early? Fake ID. <laughs> I'm serious. Everybody laughs. I, I, I'm dead serious. I'm dead. And I'm not. Kids, don't try this at home. Um, and it's funny because we actually never continued speaking about because I went on a tangent, but we never continued speaking about how much different the industry. Well, you, we can go back to that. Yeah, that's was, great. The industry was was a lot different back then in many ways. I mean, completely different. New York and New Jersey had a scene that was just as happening, but in a different way as, as Hollywood and, and L.A. I mean, bands like Twisted Sister would would play all week long. They would have their crews on salary those guys would play all week long all year long and the clubs were really really happening seven nights a week in new york and there was a really big hangout scene 
I started playing bars probably when I was 15, 16. First time I played, I was 13. My mom had to go. It was an Elks Club in, in Ridgewood, New Jersey. But my club band, which was called Anti, was a band with my brother, Anti, and we trademarked the name, and it's pissed off a lot of people that have tried to use it. But um, we were always looking for a singer for our band, and we had a bunch of different singers. We had good. It was a good band, and we were playing a lot of bars during the week. I was playing in bars and going to high school the next we opened for metallica when i was in high school and went i went to high school the next day the funniest thing about that is in this same house here we were playing in a theater in port jervis opening for, for metallica and overkill and the people from megaforce contacted me because metallica needed somewhere to stay and my mother wouldn't let metallica stay in the house <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. That was probably a smart decision, man. Well, but, I, I probably would have had a completely different career route now. But, you know, it, 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 there probably would have been a lot of help that may have happened at certain points. But there was we did the show, and, and my singer at the time, this guy named Blaze, he was like a really screwed up in the head Southern guy. And, and um, he brought in pyro and lit it off when we were on stage, and Metallica kicked us off stage. I remember the sign that their crew guy, this huge crew guy, was standing outside of the stage. The sign says, "This is your last song." Oh, jeez! So we got kicked. We got open for Metallica. Got kicked off the stage, and I guarantee you, if my mom let them stay at the house. We wouldn't have got thrown off the stage for the pyro. They probably would have let us use pyro, being like, "Fuck yeah, man! Those dudes let us <laughs> crash the house." So it changed everything. You know, we got, wow! We got thrown off the stage, but at that point in time. The drinking age in New York was 19. And when I was turning 17, the drinking age went to 21. My brother, who was a drummer in my band, he was 19. Now, how New York did it at that time was you could still go to the bars. You were grandfathered in at 19. And there was no photo licenses then. So my brother got a photo license i had his non-photo license a credit card and it's a social security card at 17. we would go to clubs i'd go in first as long as i made it i looked fucking 10. as long as we made it past the security guys <laughs> he would follow me 10 minutes later 15 there was always a line to get in with his photo id and these guys never check names so it so you just had worked. to look like you owned it, like you were supposed to be. Tell tell everybody because there's a whole generation that don't understand what it's like to actually sneak in with a bullshit fake ID. Are we like trying to encourage to. this? No, I want. No, these it's are a great, real believe. fake IDs. <laughs> yeah, tell actual, us about that. Well, you know what? It, it, the, because so many people were 19 going to 21. You know, I was 17. It, I wasn't that much different. It wasn't like the 16-year-old kid trying to get in the 21-year-old place or the 14-year-old kid, you know? I was just basically a 17-year-old pretending to be 19. So it wasn't like a huge thing, but um, I wasn't drinking. I didn't even drink until I joined Sabotage. That, so it wasn't like I was going in there and drinking underage. I just wanted to see, you know, I was seeing a lot of bands at that time that I got to see, you know, things like, Rondinelli when Ray Gillen was singing in there and I became friends with Ray through through hanging out with that and there was just so many great 
great bands that you would see in those clubs at that time that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else if you couldn't get them. But those places were open all those nights of the week. They let you play there at the, at that age, you know, because my brother was there kind of as like my chaperone. But to hang out, you had to have the ID. So we were at a place in New York City that there was a really cool hangout place. New York City had like there was seven nights of the week that you could go out. Any, in New York City, seven identical places. Like every week, you would go this place on a Monday. This place, it was they, every place had their certain night. And on Thursday in New York City, in this building in Times Square that had the news going around it, it's right at mm-hmm. the corner of, of Times Square, Forty Second Street. It um had a club called Nirvana. It was an Indian restaurant that at night on Thursdays turned into a rock club and it was a really cool place everybody would be there i mean the whole anybody that was anybody in 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 new york city at that time would show up there it was two floors and they had a stage with the glass window we're looking the city it was it was awesome but at that point in time i had met um the band heaven up there the singer from the band heaven who i actually had just saw I think it was probably New Year's into um, 87. I had just saw them playing at a, a club in, in Queens called Lemore East. There was two Lemores, and I was friends with Ray, and I was hanging out, and that was actually the first night I ever met Paul O'Neill, and this guy with the leather jacket and the white shirt and black pants showed up and said hello and walked away, and, and I met Heaven, and Heaven had that knocking on heaven's door single at the time the one that kind of um guns and roses swears was their idea for an arrangement the uh the heavy metal version of that tune which the heaven version was awesome but heaven and cvs kind of had like a falling out i don't know remember exactly what the reasons were kind of similar reasons to the way dirty looks where we're you know label wanted something bam wanted something else and then so I, I heard the Mitch Perry, their guitar player, left, and I knew this, and I'm 17. So it's funny because I was watching your video with Nuno, and he's talking about how he was young and, and was like, I'm going to get an Ozzy. You know, heaven wasn't Ozzy, but I was like, you know, I walked up to the singer. I'm like, I could, let me try to get this gig. So... I gave the guy a cassette tape of my club band, this Alan Fryer, that singer, and that singer, he passed away. And I don't want to scare singers that have worked with me, but 10 singers I've worked with in my career passed away. Ten wow. Different, yeah, 10 different singers, including Ray, Ray Gillen being one of but 10 different singers I've worked with. For those that don't know Ray Gillen from Badlands, which was uh, such an incredible project and Cheers and to the heavens. He actually sang the original version of the Eternal Idol record for Sabbath. He was in Black Sabbath. And then he was in Blue Murder. But he had his own problems with the label. And David Geffen, I guess, at that point in time, didn't want... He thought Ray's voice sounded thin on tape, which was weird. Really? They, they let Ray go, and they couldn't find another singer. I remember... Because uh, I was really, really good friends with Ray. And he Ray told me that... David Geffen invited him back because they couldn't find a singer they liked good enough to replace him. Because the idea was to make Blue Murder like the younger, new Zeppelin Whitesnake thing. And it would have been great with Sykes and Ray, but for some reason, Geffen didn't like the sound of Ray's voice on. That's how anal we were back then, where you would reject, <laughs> you like Ray Gillen. But um, 
they invited him back in and Ray had already started working with Jakey Lee and David Geffen put a blank check in front of Ray and said, put in an amount and Ray ripped it up and walked out of his office. And that, and I know that cause Ray had, had told me that story, but I gave Alan this tape and he told me he was flying to LA to, um, to audition some guitar players and he would get a hold of me while he was in the airport waiting to leave for LA. He must've went to a freaking pay phone. There was no phones at the time. I got a call at my house and it was him. And he was told me he loved the tape and that he's going out to look at some people, but he doesn't really think he's going to need to take anybody he sees because he thought I was awesome. So he went to LA, which I found out, Actually, I always work with the most, the funniest people. He told my management, which was Lieber Krebs at the time, and David Krebs and, and Steve Lieber were managing, and Paul was producing and managing Heaven. He told them that he was flying to L.A., that he needed a flight to L.A. to audition for a band with Rudy Sarzo that he was doing. I think it was called Driver or something. They wanted to audition Alan to sing, and Paul and them called up out of the management for Sarzo when Alan was out there and asked him how things were going with Alan Fryer. And they were like, who? So <laughs> Alan just wanted the free trip to LA. <laughs> so he goes out there on their dime and it comes back. But I got that gig. I, mean, I have, I was 17 years old. I have my first, wow. paycheck. my first paycheck was from Paul and, uh, wow. and David Krebs bowl. I've checks, saved checks from both of them. One was just for, were for a reimbursement for a, a hotel cost somewhere. And then another was like um, the $150 thing I got for a studio thing that I did one day. And um, that was it. We, we wrote a couple songs and it was cool. We had, we did some shows on the East coast and the West coast, the East coast shows. One of them, we had <clears throat> Skid Row pre Sebastian opening at that point in time. That was at the uh, Lemoris too, and, and um, it was ironic because you know Paul O'Neill was the band's manager, and we spent all the money we made at that show on lights, which became like our our no, you know, the thing we're known for with TSO was our lights. Paul was very right, but um, the bass player at the time was Tommy Henriksen, who you might know as a. You know, he, Alice Cooper's band. Yes, yes. He goes by a different name and, and a different instrument now, Alice Cooper band. But I've known Tommy since I was 17. And he was a badass bass player and actually a great singer. He had a, a band. Tommy's awesome. He had, a, he had a band on Long Island called Rough Cut. And then he had his own band called TF Hunter. And I always tell you, a song, a song called Secret Lover that I could still sing. He was a badass. But that thing, it just didn't. It didn't work out because there was a lot of weirdness and Alan just didn't conduct himself properly all the time, the singer. So I, I think it was one of those things where, you know, the powers that be didn't necessarily really want to deal with him that much anymore. And I kind of caught heaven with that management and Paul working them at the tail end. And Paul's like, look, I'm going in the studio to work with this band called Sabotage. And I love the band, but I I really want to make their sound bigger and live. I think they could use you. So it turns around where he's like, here's, we got a Dio. I got Sabotage a Dio tour because Paul knew Wendy. So 
Sabotage was going to open for Dio and Megadeth in December of 87. And I had the gig. Or at least I thought I had a gig. So I learned, I got to Sabotage Records, and, and I knew their music from the WSOU, their metal station. They used to play Sabotage a lot. And Back in Jersey, college, yeah. College station. College station. And um, I learned I learned every song they had. I really liked that band. You know, and uh, it was December, and I was getting ready to go down there to rehearse. The management, that Sabotage had a guy named John Goldwater who was managing the band with Paul. He called me up to tell me that Sabotage took a guitar player in Florida and that they wanted to use him. And I was like, no, they didn't. <laughs> uh, I was like, no. I said, uh-uh. I said, I've been working on this stuff for three months. I think it was at that time. I said, let me go to Florida. I pay for my own plane flight. I'll go to Florida. And if they like me, pay me back. If they don't like me, I'll go back home. How old were you at this point? Eat. How old? Uh, I was 19. 19. Wow. Good for you. Uh, just one quick thing, just before we get too far into the, into like the sabotage years, um, I think the biggest point we have to make is that you got your first gig at 17 off a of tape. Do you have yeah, any and I, that was the band on Columbia Records at the time. So. Do you have any idea or like looking back, what about your playing at 17 was able to give you that leg up? Because most 17-year-old guitar players that I hear don't have something quite that special to stand out necessarily. So right. what was it about your style or, or that was on that tape that you think made them kind of have that opinion of you? Probably just the fact that I was good and I was creative. You know, there's something about, you know, people that have, I'll, I'll call it the quote unquote it factor, you know, when somebody just is not the norm. Because you watch YouTube nowadays, you see seven there's seven hundred million kids out there that blow the fuck out of me on guitar. You know, they can play everything, sweeping, screaming, up and down, hundred miles an hour, every lick ever written. But there's not one of them out of every thousand that I see that I go, that guy is unique. And I think it was just something about me that, you know, stood out. Plus, you know, I was a pretty boy and that was a big thing about that time. You know, you, you, they wanted you to to have a certain look but i was you know i was nice i wasn't fucked up and i was good at what i did for that age and it was exceptional i was able to play you know the entire holy dire diver record when i was 15 you know when i was able to play the leads pretty damn close to what they were you know, there was some people that I thought I was playing their stuff, like <laughs> Malmsteen stuff, where I was kind of playing fast, but not exactly in his arpeggios and notes. But I was I was I was a good player. And, you know, I had done those heaven live shows that with their music in, that they did in New York. And, and um, I, I even flew out to L.A. the year before when I was um, I was still 18 at that time to play with heaven in California. And we did some shows with like warrant opening up and out and in, in the West coast. And there was a lot of the people out there watching when I was an 18 year old that were like, you know, you should move here because you would get a lot of things from going on. But I was just, I was always a New Yorker. I was a little bit too um, New York to, to go to California and, and stay. So I went back and I, and I went to Florida and I got off the plane and there was nobody at the airport to get me. No one showed up. 
they were supposed <laughs> to. So I called the number I had, and the drummer's like, Yo, just get a taxi. I was like, oh, this is freaking lovely. So their rehearsal place was like an hour north of the airport. I'm in this taxi. I get there, and I get out. I, I'd met the guys before. They were recording in New York City with Paul. And um, I plugged in, and they're like, well, what do you want to play? And I said, anything. And they're like, huh? I said, anything. I said, I know every one of your songs. And they had five records out at the time. It's a lot, yeah. Like, get the fuck out. I said, any song you have, play it. So I think they went to one of the first two records, a song called The Whip on, um, I can't remember, Sirens and Dungeons were both recorded at the same time, but they were released at different times. So I can't remember exactly which of the two right now that was on, but they picked that because I guess they thought it was obscure and it would be something I didn't know. So I played through it and it was good and i could just see the look on their face because me and chris oliva's rhythm guitar styles were almost identical it was creepy when we played together and you put us left and right it sounded like him recording two tracks in the studio and they could hear that wow. in the rehearsal room and then we played 24 hours ago and they stopped in the middle of the song left the room so we're right back and they said we weren't even planning on using the guy we had. We told again, I always get these people to make stories up to Paul O'Neill. Like we told <laughs> him we were using this kid from Florida, but we weren't even going to use him. And they go, this sounds fucking awesome. We want you to do this. And it just sounded sabotage sounded better. And that was a weird thing because Chris was such a great guitar player, but they noticed something about their band sounding better with me than without me. So I did that tour and, and Chris was having a little bit of trouble with psychologically dealing with the fact that people saw another guitar player. So first I got pushed to the side of the stage and they pushed me off. The stage. And it was just kind of like a real weird roller coaster ride. But I was 19 you know, I was opening for Dio in arenas at 19 with Megadeth and I was out and it, it was just fun. I really didn't care. So, so rolling into the the audition, knowing everything through and through, every song they could possibly choose, uh, we've heard a similar story from a previous guest, Jimmy Bell, who who did that for his audition for Autograph, um, and it's something that kind of comes up in terms of like successful people we have on the show is that that attitude of like you know go big, go home, like if you if you want it, you if you want it, you're going to do anything you can to get it. Is that something that uh, was? specific for that gig or is that an attitude that you you've kind of had throughout your career i don't i don't know i mean i think if i was auditioning for a band i didn't like i'd probably only learn what i had to you know but i loved sabotage's music so i kept going on to those records because i liked it you know i even stumbled through the fight for the rock stuff which they don't even like so <laughs> it, it was kind of one of these things and and we i left in the middle of that mountain king tour and john oliva i just remember saying he goes i'm gonna get you in this band and you know atlantic put me into the big mouth 30 looks thing that all happened really fast when i was you know just within the next like six months that at all that it all happened because see i had just turned 19 when that sabotage thing happened so it was i was like 18 in three months and you know, 19 in three months when it when it when it happened. So I still had time before I even turned 20. And I did the the um, big mouth thing, which was kind of funny. There's a video out there. The guy who directed the 
DJ Jazzy Zeff videos. And um, I got the, into the Dirty Looks thing, which, like you said, at that point in time, I mean, the music business was totally different. There was such a thing as artist development. You know, now mm -hmm. artists have to develop themselves doing this. You know, we kids have to be their own de developers. There's no tour support. You know, we would we would get incredibly large recording and tour support and video budgets back then. I mean, I'm talking half million dollar record deals and and that's on a low wow. a lot of bands and you know we were spending a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a video you know it was like just it was a different world but also back then people were actually buying records so the the industry was generating the money that it needed to lose money you know now they're barely making what they need to make money so they're not going to give you extra money because that's that's how the world works. They there's not enough sales. So back then, you know, Atlantic would have A and R people situated all over the country watching local bands, and that was you know there was people working at Atlantic that there wouldn't be a job for somebody like that now. Your job now would be to sit home and go. I just saw this on YouTube. You know, they wouldn't fly you into Indianapolis to see the yeah. cool local band that everybody's talking about, stick you in a hotel and, you know, and give you a, a dinner budget. It wouldn't happen. But, um, you know, that the, the dirty looks thing I was out of. And then within like a couple weeks, I think it was because I heard sabotage was planning on getting a hold of me. So Levis called me up and they said, we want to talk to you. So I went into the studio. They were still recording at the same place they did Mountain King for Gutter Ballet. And we went to the roof of the record plant and John and Chris Oliva were up there. And Chris Oliva was the one who said it. He's like, well, even though we think you're a dick, we want you to join the band. <laughs> and that was it. you know. And it was me who kind of screwed it up because I was still young and, and I had my band with my brother and my brother really wanted us to keep that going. And Every time I did something else, I even got him into the heaven thing, but the heaven singer didn't like him. And, and it was just one of these things where I was trying to drag my brother into things and it wasn't going to happen. But I kind of left Sabotage to go work with him and I should have just stayed in Sabotage. And it was just kind of a stupid decision. And I was back working with John Oliva within a year after I left anyway, because he was out of the band. But, you know, Chris passed away and that actually became a real pivotal pivotal moment in, in everybody's lives and career with sabotage because you know him dying was like what do we do you know and and that's when um me and john had, had decided to get back into the into the band but um there's a lot of different things that happened in that that situation but it was amazing for me to um to get into sabotage i was in that band that as a member at 20 and then we did the gutter ballet tour when I just had turned 21. And that was a really big time on MTV, 89, 90, you know, for metal. I yeah. did the headbangers ball stuff and mm -hmm. I was doing all the press and they liked, you know, using me for the public stuff. Chris wasn't really at that time. He didn't really care about getting any kind of image stuff or doing that. He, he was just like, go ahead and do it. Me and his brother went out and did it. So, They'd send me and Oliva around to to make people laugh, but um, you know that was that was Paul O'Neill working with that then. So really, that's kind of where all this ties together because at seventeen years old, 
Paul O'Neill was the manager producer of, of Heaven, and Paul was the manager producer of Sabotage, and Paul was the creator of, of TSO. And it's just kind of like I was lucky that at the age of, of 17, I um, was able to to have that happen. And like I said, I was out in that bar in New York City that night because of the fact that I was able to use my brother's fake ID. So when it all had, comes full circle. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I always believe like with the anything, fake ID came in handy. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that with anything in life, though. It's timing is everything. I mean, it's almost as simple as you're not going to win that scratch off ticket in that lottery machine if you don't if you're not there when that is the next ticket coming out of the machine. And it's kind of like that with just about anything in life. And it happens a lot with the music business. And, you know, it's nowadays it's like, you know, I'm, I'm sabotage isn't playing at the moment. I'd love them to play, but we're not. And people are like, well, what are you doing? And it's like, I do my solo stuff and I do, you know, TSO was playing non holiday, but then Paul passed and he's not. And it's like, well, are you doing anything else? And it's like to really actively pursue something that would be playing all the time it's it's almost like it was from your kid you got to go hang out you got to be in the right place well i'm out going it's tuesday night and you're at so-and-so's party here you had to drive two hours to it you can't see at night driving it's like to find hopefully that somebody's you know so it's, it's kind of one of these things i'm i'm happy with where i'm at i you know i did the new spirits of fire record i'm writing a lot of music and doing a lot of art and working at home i'm not broke it's like i'm I'd love to be doing the sabotage thing. You know, that's what, what I'd love to do more than anything right now is if sabotage could go back and, and, and tour the world again. But, you know, that has to come together on all fronts from all the way around or, or it's not going to happen. So I always sit there trying to stay positive about that. We actually wrote some music and um, I think we have enough to do a new record. I just don't know what is going to happen with that right now. So we're just kind of getting through it. And, um, you know, TSO is finishing recording and we're going to release a lot of the unreleased stuff that was done by Paul O'Neill, because what people don't know is the, the best TSO record has not been released yet. And that's in my own personal opinion. But there was the very first TSO record that was ever done was this record called Romanoff that Paul was writing with John Oliva and um, Bob Kinkle before Christmas Eve and other stories was even done. But when Sabotage released Dead Winter Dead and Christmas Eve Sarajevo hit the regular adult contemporary radio stations and Atlantic is like the giant light bulb goes over their head and what could we do with this song? You know, Paul decided to use his longtime idea for TSO on doing his Christmas trilogy first. So the Romanoff, it's, that's the name of that record, kind of got pushed to the side. And can we just hold on pause for one moment? Because I remember, you know, I, I'm not exactly was it like mid 90s, early 90s. You guys had that record. I remember seeing it come on MTV and being like, because we're in a band called Lost Symphony where that we have, you know, symphonic music with all of that. And when I first heard Carol of the Bells. I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life as a child. I was like, yeah. holy shit. First off, no stupid vocals. Straight to the guitar solos. And there's an orchestra. How fucking epic is this? And like you said, it's on adult contemporary radio. This is like a new sound that came out. Like, how did that feel for you being in a band that like, honestly, you're like, does it have vocals? No. 
It d- d- does it is it pop ready? Not really. I mean, it's Tchaikovsky, but like you know, that was 19th century. Like the it fact was that you guys were so. Su- it, it was funny because we were rehearsing for um, the uh, the Dead Winter Dead tour of Europe in Florida, and Johnny Lee, the bass player, his dad owned an air conditioning company, and he would help his dad during the day. And he was driving from wherever he was in Tampa that day to rehearsal. And he gets in the room and, and he was just like, yeah, you and I aren't going to believe this. I just heard Sarajevo on Mix 96. And we all started laughing. And it was like, this was the adult contemporary station. He's like, dude, it was just on Mix 96. And first of all, I'm laughing because... Sarajevo was on Mix 96, but then second of all, I was like, why is Johnny Lee listening to Mix 96? But I, <laughs> it was kind of like, it was two parts to my thoughts at the time, but it just, there was this, Mason Dixon was his DJ down there, and he got a hold of the song. I think it was the guitar player from Kansas or somebody said, you got to hear this. And he heard it and he played it, and it went, he said the phones went bananas where they normally would get like maybe 20, requests on a song this was getting 300 you know people were just calling like crazy and he told his friend scott shannon in new york city about it scott was that i believe it was plj at the time in new york and they played it and it went to number one there right in front of atlantic you know where they could turn on the radio and hear sabotage number one requested on a, a huge station in new york city so they were like, well, what do we do with the song? Because we can't really sell Christmas under the name of Sabotage. And then that's when Paul said, well, let's release TSO. You know, he stopped having his idea of having Romanoff be the first release and just went to that. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I mean, that's 26 years ago now this year. And, um, you know, everybody's everybody's lives changed from there. I mean, we didn't have any idea what was going to happen. From there, we went from playing Sabotage played 1224 live at the Mix 96 Christmas party that year. You know, we were invited in as guests and and Bob Kinkle came down and played keyboards. And we did that as that was the first time we played that song live in front of people. And then now we play that song, you know, in front of a million people a year in arenas. And it's just kind of. It's been a crazy thing, but... uh, You say you didn't have any idea, but, like, what was your initial opinion when you first, you know, played or heard that track? Like, was it like, oh, this is something unique? Did you think it was something unique, at least? Well, Paul knew it was. Paul, his arrangement. And he had that. I heard that when I was 17. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get other bands to do it. Paul was a big part of, of helping break Joan Jett in her career in the United States. He was working with her and, and Joan had told me a lot of the story. So it's like, I'm not just making that up saying Paul told me something. It's like, I spoke to Joan at, at actually at Paul's funeral about Paul. And he really had a lot to do with what they were doing at the time. And they used little drummer boy with her singing and got it on to rock radio at Christmas time. And then in January released, I love rock and roll. And it was like a tool to get her name to a whole shitload of stations that were not rock ones along with the rock ones. And it just, 
really, I think, had a lot to do with the initial snowball of that song exploding out of the gate. And he had this song and he tried, I think he tried to get, they may have even done a demo of it, the Scorpions to record it and some other people. And, you know, I think even Heaven had a, a recorded version of it, but he saw the Dead Winter Dead record for Sabotage to be the perfect time where he wrote it into the story where this cello player was, who was actually a real story for the, for the war there in Sarajevo was on top of a pile of, of burnt down buildings playing his, his cello. And that was where this song, that intro to that song is supposed to be that guy and our, our record about that war, which, you know, now ironically there's, there's some, musicians that were out playing in this totally messed up war that's going on right now but um the uh the song just married that record you know and that that's that point so paul finally had a chance to do it i remember when it was funny because oliva wanted dead winter dead done so he could fly home we were recording it in new york and we hadn't finished the record as soon as the recording was done john was able to leave before the mixing but we Paul wanted to do Sarajevo. So he paid John off. I forget how much it was to stay. He gave him, John, I'll give you five. He gave him some extra money and he stuck around and we did that song. Wow. And, uh, it's a true story. Oliva is, is actually was the first one to let it go. I always wanted to say it, but I was like, do I get in trouble? But Oliva let it go to radio and interviews. So I know that it's not something I can't say, but that's what it actually happened with that and i remember when we were mixing the song because i stayed in new york and paul had a writing apartment near where i lived in astoria and he had a a brownstone in the city but he would go out to this place when we were finished in the studio at night and i would go into the studio every day with him even if i wasn't working just to hang out and i like being in a studio paul always used the biggest you know cool studios he'd go in there we'd He'd let me order whatever food I wanted from every local restaurant. <laughs> He's sitting there. I was like, I had my my own stack of, of delivery things I could get. And uh, it was always fun. But I was listening to the final mix of that song. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, I really think there's a hit song in this thing. And he just goes from your lips to God's, you know, ears, boss. And that was what he said about it. But I think he, he always knew there was something good about that and different about that arrangement. And it just it just took off. I mean, and that's, you know, the song for, for what became the, uh, the catapult for TSO. You know, it was like, um, it's, I always say, it's like, you know, you don't know what would have happened. The timing was right, but it, that timing actually it worked for TSO. It worked for everybody for that for that to be out then. But um. You know, it was uh, was definitely something that I, you know, you heard into it. But I think Paul was the one who always knew that TSO was going to do what it did because we were writing for the next Sabotage record when TSO was going to to do um, the video for for Sarajevo. And, and it, the Sabotage guys, we were in Florida, and he kind of did the video with silhouettes of Bob Kinkle and Petrelli, and, and we were talking to Paul about, you know, we're like, Paul, we're not in the video. It's like, oh, we're not using people in the video. So I'm like, all right, because he didn't want to do have to deal with flying us to New York at that time just to do the, the quick thing of the video. And, and um, he's like, don't worry, when TSO plays arenas, we haven't even released the record yet. And he 
telling me, you know, <laughs> don't worry about getting in videos with TSO headlines arenas. So he was just, you know, trying to let us like, don't worry about coming up to be a silhouette in this video where, you know, everything's going to be huge. And so he's, he's a visionary a through and through. Exactly. Absolutely. When we were in arenas, he's like, now in TSO headlines, stadiums, now, granted, <laughs> you can't play a stadium in, in most of our markets in the wintertime, but we'll play two shows in Dallas and two shows in, in Cleveland in the same day and have, you know, close to 60,000 people in one day. So TSO does stadium numbers in a single day. So he, he just, yeah, he just always, he always saw it. And he's one of those people that was so driven at what he did. And, and he would, if somebody told him no, it would make him want to work harder to make it happen. You know, where a lot of people will will see something as a challenge and then walk away from it. Paul would see it as a challenge and he would have to beat it and meet it. And it just was something that always it always worked with that, which, um, you know, it's it's hard for us now with with TSO because, you know, it's we're still keeping his legacy alive and, and doing what he did. But, you know, it's with without he was just such a huge part of his creation that it's 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 one of these things where I, I always want to call him and ask him what's going on next Paul and it's like it's he was that guy he was like my dad and my brother and and you know something was wrong or if I had questions about money or politics or taxes or business deals or whatever he would he would always let me you know listen to his experience and then when he passed away I'm like well, who am I going to call and talk about Paul dying I can't call Paul and it's just, you know, it's a real weird thing. You know, life has definitely not been the same for any of us since he's passed away. I mean, we're still doing what we do. We still played the tour. It's still, you know, making money, making music, but we're making it without him. And it's 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 different. You know, I, I have to admit. Do you think it's like a tribute now, though? Do you think that, like, you know, you guys are playing for him as much as just continue? Because would he want um, this? He, would he, he want would it to be like now? Us. He would want us to do it. He spoke to us about that. You know, he always wanted to keep TSO going. That's why TSO is has the multiple bands, you know, because he sees it being larger than any one sum, you know. That's why he doesn't he wasn't on the stage and doing, you know, he did his thing, we do our thing. It's like he considered it all, you know, one big giant thing. And I think if um he he would expect it to be that way and i think that's kind of why also even with the um the singers being multiple where as time went on he's like you know these who's going to be able to do this when they reach x age you know as we could keep this going forever and he just wanted to keep keep the music alive and you know keep the art alive and that's i think the uh the thing he, he always said, you know, it's just uh, he wanted to to create the best piece of art he, he could. And if, if people liked it, then we we were we were being successful. But I think he always, you know, he had that that confidence about what he did, which I think people need. You know, he he was he was very, very sure about some things that a lot of us would go no way you know he, he was just he had that like i said that vision i mean the last show that, that we did in europe with with tso was a tso sabotage thing at that Bakken festival and and we had both we had sabotage play then tso 
a version play and then all TSO musicians played on two stages at once at there and it was 80,000 people and it was it was just crazy I mean it was uh something where you looked at it and it was just larger than life and that was all Paul I mean, well he, that's important that you say that because it sounds like he thought about dividing and conquering was more important for the for the great uh, greater good of the art than just any one person any one player but that his vision like whether you have to have two bands going across the country playing two shows a day it's about spreading the message and it seems like you guys have done that like i mean if you say about it on on paper like hey your band's going to be so big you can pack the the centrum center in worcester massachusetts two shows and you're gonna have another band playing simultaneously that's the same music the same band somewhere else in the country selling out two shows a day that's not no one can replicate that i don't even know where that exists so that's just incredible testament to who he was yeah, I mean, at that time of the year, too, we were challenged by the fact that, you know, we, you know how it works. You're promoting a tour, you you promote with radio. You know, that's a big part of your promotions. The radio works with us with the charities. The radio does all these things, and our music mm-hmm. hits radio stations after Halloween. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. and it usually stops at radio stations after New Year's. So it's like, you've got this X amount of time to go make this happen. So it's like, well, how are we going to do that? And then it was like, let's, you know, clone ourselves. And (laughs) and that's where East and West came in. And it just wound up being, you know, it's, there's still places we could play. You know, there, there could be multiple more TSOs. I mean, I can't, you can't get to Europe while you're covering the States and you can't just like parts of North America. You can't, it's just, it's, it's one of these things where it's a magical time of the year and that music just happens to hit people in a certain way. And it's just the whole presentation and the show is just, it's, it's different, you know, and it's, it goes from the ages eight to 80 and it reaches everybody. So it's kind of one of these things that, you know, you're not really limited to a year or a time. And, and and every year, there's still people who haven't seen it. I still look on the website and I'll see people saying, how are you playing in Pittsburgh and Tampa on the same day? You're like Santa. You know, 25 <laughs> years later, still people don't know there's an East and West. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's amazing that when I'll be on stage and I'll talk to the crowd before about the charity stuff, and I'll say, how many people have never seen TSO before? And it's still 50% of the crowd raising their hands. So there's yeah. amazing a number of people that you could still reach with it. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so we're coming to the end of our first hour, part one. Uh, and, I mean, what a highlight. Just, just TSO is such an unrivaled for so i appreciate the insight into that and then how you you experienced that the execution of, uh, of a dream is unparalleled yeah and yeah. we have we have a whole nother hour to talk and i definitely want to get into kind of what you're up to now especially with the spirits of fire stuff and, and you, you know your soul because work. we'll be here till like 7 30 and i'll still be talking about tso <laughs> <laughs> oh. there's still a lot more there's still a lot more a lot you're more getting 2020 because sure. we're going to make people come back and listen to the rest of this because I, I'm riveted. We get to talk yeah. to you in a second. They have to wait till later in the week. But that said, like, Chris, thank you for sharing your heart with us, bro. I have I have lifetimes of stuff and I didn't even hit, you know, a small amount. of any we of got No, I already hour. have a lot. Of, I have a lot of questions uh-huh. still just based on what we've talked about. We're so going to continue our discussion in part two. But Chris, uh, just anything you want to let people know about right now? I know, you know, any your social media, is it uh, Chris Caffrey official? 
I think on Instagram, uh, Twitter is just yeah, Chris Caffrey. Today, there's another Chris Caffrey fake on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've you made got, it. Yeah, no, I've had like 15 fakes. People have been faking. You made me. it 15 <laughs> times. Yeah, but today, there's a new one today, and they always block me and message everybody as me. You know, it's like <laughs> hi. I'm like, I don't even like people. Never mind, like, start. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not that way, but you know, it's like, I don't want to, like, just find random people and start saying, hey, I barely got time to do the lawn today. It's like, you know, it's like, I got to sit there and. And on that note, if it's not Chris Caffrey official, it ain't Chris Caffrey. Come back later this week. You've well, been 2020. Like, well, there's a reason, too. Like, I don't have the blue dot right now because. I left Instagram because the Russians, seriously, the Russians hacked my Instagram like three and a half years ago. All of a sudden, one day I couldn't get on my Instagram. So I went to sign on it. It was taken and there was a new email that got my Instagram. So I had to message Instagram and do the thing where you're holding the, they send you a number. You got to write it on a piece of paper and hold it. They need to verify it's you. Then they shut that down. And after that, I was just like, screw this and i didn't go anywhere near it and instagram was kind of not rich you know facebook was still the thing at the time i had two hundred thousand followers on my music page so i bailed out of instagram at like probably fifteen thousand followers and i just bailed on it they were all gone and then all of a sudden everybody i know had like 20 30 followers like you gotta get back to instagram and then tso was doing a pay-per-view in 2020 and they're like can you do this radio interview? And the radio guy's like, we do it as a link through Instagram. I'm like, all right, I'll go back. So I started back on the Instagram and now I got like 11,000, you know, followers or whatever close to it. And I still don't have the blue dot. And I'm trying to explain to Instagram who's owned by the same company as Facebook that I'm the guy on Facebook with the blue dot. Why can't I get your freaking blue dot? And it's like, I can't couldn't even report. I'm trying to report this guy as a fake today. And if you want to put as a public figure, you need to have the blue dot to report as that. So I can't even report myself as real because these bozos don't know how to make me real. I just put the fucking blue dot on. I mean, so are you actually real? <laughs> Who are we talking to here? Instagram, if you're listening, give Chris the fucking blue dot. We'll get a blue dot before me. All right. She's more real than, he's more real than me. Let's pick this let's pick this up next week 2020-d.com. Thanks again Chris. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 114 featuring Roddy Chong of Trans Siberian Orchestra. Check it out. And I got to tell you first of all, I'm in the string section. So the string section there's six strings to help balance out the staging and and also the sound of Trans Siberian Orchestra. And I'm watching this show from the stage and I did not understand the show. Like I'm playing and it's like, it's just like fog and I can see different colors going on. But what I did understand in San Diego and Los Angeles at the Coliseum was a matinee and an evening show both sold out. Like I understood the ticket sales. I'm like, something is going on with this band. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. 
It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon. From Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.